Hey, Dr. Mike here. 34 million people in the U.S. are food insecure, but it actually affects all of us. Stay tuned to learn how you can help with our guest, Clancy Ears. You're listening to Live Foreverish, a show dedicated to helping you live just a little longer. Here's your hosts, Dr. Mike and Dr. Crystal Gossard. All right, welcome to Live Foreverish. So, Dr. Crystal, food insecurity. Uh, we've never really talked about this before, but I, I'm glad we are now. Um, and we definitely have an expert who's going to help us understand this and how I, I, I really would like, you know, our audience, um, you guys are awesome. We, we love your loyalty. You guys are into health. You're into the supplements. They're into living forever-ish, strong, healthy, vibrant stuff, right? You, you, so our, you guys are definitely with us on that. But there are a lot of people who, who don't have that opportunity, right? And so I'm glad that we're talking about this topic. So we have Clancy Arison. She is a food equity advocate a registered dietitian and a TEDx speaker, which by the way, that was a really good video. Clancy Harrison challenges the way food insecurity is approached and discussed. She is the founder of the Food Dignity Movement, a strategic program for leaders who want to shift how they approach nutrition outreach by making healthy food access a priority. And here's the key with dignity. Clancy Harrison, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's certainly an honor. We're, we're really happy to have you. Um, and of course, we're going to talk a little bit about what you do and, and definitely want to talk about um, right there behind you, right? Um, is your is your food dignity movement. Love that. Great logo, by the way. It's really Thank good. Um, I, so I watched your TEDx uh, video, your mm -hmm. presentation, and I, I you definitely... I, I got a lot of really cool nuggets out of it, right? And so I don't even know where to like start everything. Um, so let me just ask, let's get right to, to down to, the, to to what we're talking about here. How do you define food insecurity and how is it different from hunger and poverty? Hmm. Well, I, I'm not going to get into the definition first. Let's just say that someone who lives in poverty could actually not be food insecure. And you're probably thinking, how? And that is because we have amazing food programs in the United States. We have Women, Infant, and Children. That's WIC. We have SNAP, otherwise known as Food Stamp. We have food stamps. We have food banks and food pantries. And so when someone can utilize the programs, the nutrition programs that are available to them, and they're living in poverty, they could actually be food secure. And then we could have someone who would never even qualify for food assistance programs. They live above the poverty line, but they are food insecure because maybe there was a death in the family. Maybe there was a car accident. Maybe they were diagnosed with a disease and now they have all the medical care costs. Maybe something like COVID hit and we lose our job. Maybe there's a birth of a child. So there's all these things that anyone at any point could find themselves having food stress and not having enough resources to maintain a healthy and active lifestyle and diet in their household. So would you say that if you find yourself having to make a choice or even think about, do I pay this bill? Do I buy these groceries? 
Do I have enough to 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 meet all the needs of myself and my family? Would that then kind of be a part of that definition of food insecurity? Sure. So do you mind if I just go through the definitions real quick? Oh, yeah. yeah. Go for it. So the USDA has four definitions. And if we think of food security, everyone in the house has access to enough food. If we get to marginal food secure, that means that someone's having food stress. They don't change their eating habits, but they might stand in the grocery store. And we see this a lot now. All you have to do is go to the grocery store and listen. I can't believe the prices. I don't know if I'm going to be able to continue to buy this or eat this. Nothing changes with their eating habits. So that's still someone food secure. So then the last two definitions are low food security and very low food security. I want to jump right to very low food security because I think that's what we all think of when we think of hunger. I'm a product of the 80s and 70s. So I think of inner city, generational poverty, which are all myths. I also think of third world countries. I think of starving kids, full, like not full bellies, but bloated bellies, sunken um, eyes and skinny limbs. But the reality is when someone is very low food secure in the United States, they, yes, they might skip a meal. They might go three days without a meal. They might dumpster dive. They might steal for food and they might use food assistance programs. So that's what we might equate hunger to based off of what we've been exposed to personally. But there's another definition and it's called low food security. And when we talk about low food security, what happens is we have enough calories. So we start making changes in our food choices. We might eat instant noodles day in and day out. We might eat prepared pancake mix day in and day out because it's less expensive, it's available, and it's easy. So if we're eating the same thing every day, we're not going to get the protein, calcium, the vitamin D, the fiber, all these other nutrients that we need. Our bellies are full, but we're malnourished on the inside. And that's why we start seeing the word nutrient or nutrition insecurity. Again, we have the calories, we don't have the nutrition. When we don't have that nutrition, we are not going to thrive at our job. We're going to be sick more often. We might have our kids at the pediatrician's office and they're not in school and they can't think. So all these things could happen. And I always say, so I went to Penn State University and uh, when I was at Penn State, I survived on ramen noodles. I love ramen noodles. Nothing wrong with ramen noodles. They helped me get through college. But I want to say that was not a rite of passage. That was food insecurity. And so many times we think, oh, you're just going to go to college and just, you know, eat your instant noodles. It's just part of the process. And really, that's food insecurity. And I think if we can start understanding the bigger scope and understand of, def of the definition, but also understands that yes, there are populations that have been marginalized. There's something called institutional food racism that happens. There, there's really no set for food insecurity. There's high risk populations, single moms, black, Latino. But at the end of the day, any one of us could find ourselves struggling with our food access and having food stress just by something as simple as COVID happening. So when, did you hear my stat at the very beginning, my little teaser, 30, what was it? 34 million mm -hmm. people yeah. in the U S are food insecure. Where are most of those people falling? Very low, low, marginal, where, where, at least in the United States, where are people falling in that? 
Well, can I, I'm just going to be candid. I don't like stats of hunger. <laughs> it's fun. I don't. I personally, I don't know. Like I'm looking, I looked up a stat, right? As soon as I Googled it, Feeding America, I saw 13 million people, um, children, one in eight. And I also saw on their website, 9 million, one in eight in 2021. Where, how are we accounting for grocery store inflation? How are we accounting for gas prices? I think rates of food insecurity change so fast because of things that are happening in real time that it's hard to really pinpoint a specific population. Yes, if you go to the USDA, they're going to break it down and they're going to give you certain percentages that most people are going to be very low food security. But how many people in middle class are raising their hands saying, I'm struggling to buy food. And many people don't understand that if they're constantly eating instant noodles and their bellies are full, and if they're thinking of generational poverty, inner city poverty, or third world countries, they don't self-identify as food insecure. So there's a lot of confusion around the definition. So that's why I don't really like going into stats because I've been on the ground fighting hunger for over 13 years and it's not behind a death. It's literally running a food pantry during COVID alone, just not since COVID, we're well over 4 million meals. So I've been the person that had to turn people away because we haven't had enough food to give out. I, one of the things that we pride ourselves at Food Dignity is sitting down and talking to the people that we want to work with, the people that need our food, and we ask what they need, what solutions will work for them, what a success looks for them, looks like for them. So when we're having these conversations and we're hearing the real stories, I would rather talk about that than statistics that I don't necessarily think be truly accurate right now. So, I, and I, I can appreciate that. I just wonder when, when you're out doing the work that you do, do you find that there are certain groups that, um, that you have to, that are more dire? So do you, do you, is, is there some type of, of hierarchy that these people really need our health the most, they need more access. So is that a part of, of what you're doing? Sure. I, I've moved on away from the food pantry model where we ask someone to actually go to a faith-based organization or something similar to receive their food. We're working with nonprofits right on site. So we're working with veterans. We're working with elderly. We're working with single moms. We're working with people who are in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction working with those populations that seem to be shunned and not helped, or maybe they don't have the resources to get to the food pantry, and but they're working on whatever they need to do to get from point A to point B. And so, yes, I think there's one population, it's our elderly population. They're very proud. They're, they need help. We have many elderly people slipping through the cracks and they don't want to ask for help. Many times they will say, it's for people worse than me. It's for yeah. the children. I've heard and that. They yeah. do not want the help. They need it. It's hard to ask for help. It's very hard. Right? Especially some of those older generations, right? That's, that's so true. <laughs> I mean, even for me, it's hard to ask for help. <laughs> I, you know, um, uh, uh, Clancy, one of the things that, that popped up and I think you saw this in the, the TEDx video that she has. And, and we'll let the audience know all about that coming up, how they can find you and stuff. Um, 
But one of the things that we were curious about was, it, so you know, you hear you have some children, some kids, right, facing food insecurity. They don't really understand it. They don't really they get that that they're eating the same thing every day, stuff like that. There, there's no real healthy choices. How does that impact their choices when they're teenagers or a little later in life, right? Yeah, yeah. So first, I think we need more research on this. We are seeing emerging research showing eating disorders, and I've experienced personally, I, when we're working on site with populations who we know are food insecure, they will tend to hoard food. They, if it's like a feast and famine mindset. So when food's available, let's eat a lot because we don't know when we're going to get our next meal. And that eating practice will carry on into the future. That's what we're seeing. And that's what I've personally seen. When a child does not have access to food, think about how you are when you get hungry. Like I am the most miserable person. Do not come near me. I am mean. She gets I'm mad. Right? <laughs> Crystal gets me. <laughs> yeah. Now imagine if you were that child and you're sitting in class and you don't emotionally, mentally, or physically understand those sensations and emotions and tiredness and the behavior outbursts that you're having just because you need a steady supply of granola bars. And you're constantly sent to the principal's office because you have bad behavior. And then you're labeled as a child with bad behavior. And then we're even seeing that they're putting them on ADHD medication when we need to talk about food and steady food access. And what does that mean? And that's why it's really important that we support our national school and breakfast programs and even our SNAP and programs because this is going to help children get the services and the food that they need. So tell us about, um, I'm curious about the dignity part. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I think that it's, it's more than just about food. I love the food dignity and just how do you come up with, with that aspect of your work and what does that mean to the so individual who's dealing with this and to everyone? Sure. So it's evolved over time. I call myself a recovering food elitist. <laughs> so when I stand on stage, I talk about how I used to project what I thought was healthy and the types of food we should eat without ever asking if someone had barriers to food access. And when I started working or volunteering at this food pantry, I wanted people to have more than just canned food. I wanted them to have the food that was fresh, local, regionally sourced, quality, high quality animal products, right? And so that's where it started. Yes, it started. I would, I wanted to give a steak over ground beef and there's nothing wrong with ground beef, but now over, you know, now I think 14 years, it's really evolved in the fact that dignity in needing food, there's dignity in hunger. And we don't really have a set definition. Food dignity means something different to everyone. And if we're going to be in movement, we need to be fluid and understand and include everyone's voice in that definition. I can tell you that we have three pillars of how we approach our consulting with nonprofits and organizations and universities around the country. And what we do is first, we have to uncover our own hidden biases. How are we judging other people? And how does that create barriers to food access, how does that judgment and misconception actually cause hunger? The next one is understanding where we cause those barriers. What are the barriers first, but then how do we cause them? And can we be humble enough to take a step back and say, where am I wrong? So I'm right. 
And then the third one, the most important one, well, I think they're all equally important. I shouldn't say that because you can't have one without the other. You have to be able to center the person. And I always say working with, we're not helping people, we're working with them. So what does success look like for them? Can we just say, what do you want to eat? And can we get away from the charity mindset of you get what you get and you don't get upset? So what do we want to eat is such an important question. And then how do we start sourcing that food versus giving people food for the sake that it's food? I, I always are, you can take a guess on this, but we always keep a, that was donated at the longest expiration. Do you want to take a guess? Oh, <laughs> now did you? Uh, yeah, year. I don't know. Yeah, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty seven. Sorry, nacho cheese, canned nachos cheese was donated in twenty twenty from nineteen eighty seven. And I look at that as an example of is that a charitable mindset or a food dignity mindset? Well, you know, yeah. To me, that's it's so bizarre, and I don't even think we have time to go into this. That the (laughs) amount of food that is good food from five star Michelin restaurants wasted that's wasted. I know, Um, and that's I know that's a whole nother thing. But but at what point? How can we get away from that? And that we think about this um, with my sorority, we we donate food and we have a service where we're packing snack bags for high school children uh, to take home over the weekend. And one thing that we consider, like not the box macaroni and cheese, like how can fresh the food food that you would want to eat as well? Don't don't dig out why do night night well i, I have a little t- i have a little take on this just just and this is just my you, you guys are experts and so but it, it's easy to say when you look at just a population of people and say oh we don't like, like hunger let me donate, donate some, some stuff, stuff to a food bank right? right and that's, that's not, not necessarily, necessarily bad, bad but it's e- that's easy what's hard is to actually get to know people and listen to them as individuals and listen to the stories that they're telling you. And then you might say, oh, I'm going to get you some of the fresh food I like. Mm-hmm. And so it's the challenge, I think, is actually meeting people where they are at and listening. Not just doing it from this place where you don't have to get your hands dirty, if I can. Something like that. I'm not sure what the analogy is. But that's just what's, what I'm taking away from this. It's the most important thing we can do is listen to the stories because like you wanted to have stats. We need to humanize those stats with the stories and individuals and put a face to it. And when we can do that, I think that there's gonna be more dignity, more dignity and more compassion. But we have, we have to sit and listen and talk and find out what people, what success looks like for them, not what we think it should be. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think we should also take away whatever preconceived perception notions that we have like don't stop giving the evil eye to the person in front of you at the checkout line Mm. that oh good point yeah that's has all the coupons and trying to figure out yeah right and just understanding that um coming from a place of compassion yeah and also knowing that it could be you yeah you're listening to clancy harrison she is the founder of the food 
uh, I'm sorry, the Food Dignity Program, right? Is that no, the Food, food Dignity, Dignity Movement. Movement? Food Dignity Movement. Um, tell us a little bit about how that all started, where you're at today, and where you want to take this movement. And ultimately, how can we help? How can our audience help? So if you can give us a website or something like that uh, that we can send our audience to, that would be great. Yeah, sure. So fooddignitymovement.com. One of the things that we really work with, there are nonprofits or um, corporations or universities who want to make changes, but they don't know how and where do they start. If you're an individual and you're in your community, please find please understand the difference between a food bank and a food pantry. A food bank provides food to the food pantry. They're usually the people who are don't, or who have all the funding. Your direct service operations are your food pantries, and they rarely get funding. But yes, they might get food from their food bank, but they also have to pay a lot of bills. They have to manage a lot of volunteers. They also will source food that they cannot get from the food bank. So that would be my biggest tip is making sure that you connect with the direct service operations. And before you make a donation or ask to volunteer, reach out to them, but ask them what they need and not assume what they need because uh, they might be serving a population that really needs culturally appropriate foods versus something that you might have in your cupboard or something that you would typically buy. Um, but yeah, for us with Food Dignity, it's really about right now sourcing regional food. So we are investing a lot in our local farmers and connecting those small farmers to the smaller nonprofits. And we're doing this around the country so that we are rethinking our food supply chain. We're reinvesting back in our economy. We're helping the sustainability of local farms. And we feel that if we can look at this as a whole, as a community and address the needs of people where they're at through local agriculture, we're going to solve a lot more problems than just, you know, thinking of a big sourcing from big corporations or big box uh, food banks to more of that regional aspect. That's what that's really what we're working on now uh, at Food Dignity, besides the stigma reduction and training yeah. and speaking. Fooddignity.com, right? Food. Uh, it's fooddignitymovement.org. Food. Oh, there you go. Fooddignitymovement.org. Uh, Clancy, I want to thank you for coming on today. This was fascinating information. And again, I'm really going to encourage Dr. Crystal, myself, our production team, our audience to really go check out the website and see how how you can help um, and, and really start changing the way we think about all of this and people wanting healthy food, people being hungry, that kind of that kind of stuff. So Thank you so much for coming on today. Hey, don't forget, you go to liveforeverish.com. We have now hit 400 episodes, Dr. Crystal, Ooh. right? Woo-hoo, Dr. Crystal, let's show them the one-two punch. Yes, you give your, you give, good. I like it, even, even sound effects now. Um, give your email, that's punch number one, and you get a newsletter from our sponsor, Life Extension, which is all good science, good information. And then subscribe right there to your favorite uh, podcast place. I never know how to say that, whatever aggregate, whatever they call it, right? That's liveforeverish.com. I'm Dr. Mike. Thanks for listening.